0: If you have your Bibles or scripture journals, I hope you do. I want to invite you to open with me to the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah. If you don't have a scripture journal and you want one, they're right there on the welcome desk. You can feel free to get up and go get one right now if you want to or grab one on your way out. There are uh, two that you can choose from. The text of them is exactly the same. The design is just different. And they are $4 American if you want one of those. And this might help you um, learn better as we work through Uh, this book of Jonah. And I think in the scripture journal, it's the very first book in there, is it? Um, Right when you open it, you should have Jonah and chapter one. And so we're going to read Jonah one, one through three. Okay. So just the first three verses of this uh, book that you're surely familiar with. As you know, we've taken a break from Luke. We'll pick it back up sometime in February. Um, But for this month, um, at least we will be focusing on the book of Jonah. And so I believe you are there by now. If you uh, don't have it, you can look behind me on the screen. It'll be in my translation there as well. Let's go ahead and read this together. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The Holy Spirit says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. May God raise eternal truths on all of our hearts. You either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. This is a line that the character Harvey Dent says in one of my favorite movies of all time, The Dark Knight, which I rewatched like twice this last week uh, for about the hundredth time. If you're unfamiliar with Dark Knight, it's a Batman movie. Okay, Can you imagine me being into something Batman? In which the main villain is the Joker, and he's played by the late Heath Ledger. There are many reasons why I love this movie. Among them is the unorthodox nature of the main antagonist. Um, the Joker, he's not like most villains that you'll encounter in, in movies, whether they're comic book or, or not. Uh, he's not motivated by a quest for power. He isn't after control. He doesn't care about money. He, he doesn't want uh, cars or mansions. He, nor is he trying to avenge like a fallen friend or family member or any such thing. Rather, Joker is an agent of chaos. So uh, as Alfred says at one point in the film, some men just want to watch the world burn. And that's the Joker. But it's more than that. Joker wants to prove to Batman that everyone else in Gotham City, given the opportunity, all people are actually willing to do evil. Or to at least push the boundaries further and further in service to what they think is good. He tells Batman at one point, you see, their morals, their code, it's a bad joke. Dropped at the first sign of trouble. They're only as good as the world allows them to be. I'll show you when the chips are down, these civilized people, they'll eat each other. And the thing is, again, this is why it makes this movie unique. He's right. Joker is proved to be right. He succeeds in the end. Uh, Something else that makes the movie unique. See, even though Joker is captured at the end and Batman is convinced that people will end up doing the right thing, Joker reveals his plan all along has been to get Harvey Dent to turn. See, Dent was the district attorney. He was, the, all throughout the movie, he's a paragon of virtue. He's the public face of good that stood up to the corruption and criminals. But now he had lived long enough to become a villain since he didn't die a hero, as he foreshadowed earlier in the film. What Harvey Dent had to face in the end was that for all the time he spent fighting bad guys and looking down on them and trying to stop the Joker, it turns out that he was actually just like them on the inside. He just needed the right circumstances to bring it out. The last thing Joker says to Batman in the film is this. He says, I I took Gotham's white knight, referring to Harvey Dent, and brought him down to our level. It wasn't hard. You see, madness, as you know, is like gravity. All it takes is a little push. Harvey Dent, who becomes the villain Two-Face, looked down on Joker but turned out to be just like him in the end. He just needed a little push. Jonah is a story you know. It's a story that most people, whether they've read the Bible or not, have, or have even stepped into a church before, are familiar with. We see him as the prodigal prophet, the one who was commissioned by the Lord and fled, as the pouting prophet who sulked in the belly of a fish, as someone who harbored bigotry and nationalism, as someone who thought grace should be extended to only him and his friends, as someone who lashed out when he didn't get his way. In other words, we know the story, and we know what it's telling us. Look at Jonah. He's a mess. Don't be like him. And we might thus read it and say, I'm glad I'm not like Jonah. But what this book is communicating to us is not only don't be like Jonah, but it's confronting word that's telling us look closely, look really close and see yourself in Jonah. Because you're more like him than you may think. See, like Harvey Dent, we want to look at Jonah the way Dent looked at Joker, with pity and with a self-righteous disposition that says, I'm glad I'm not like him, and I'll never do what he did. But like Dent, it turns out, we're more like the one we may look down upon than we're willing to admit until pushed or confronted. Mark Buchanan put it very well. He says, Jonah is us. Those other prophets, so free and bold, so daunting and undaunted, so flinty and unflinching, they're larger than life. And then there's Jonah. Hands plowed deep into his pant pockets, shoulders folded into a perpetual slouch, face cast in a hardened sneer. He complains about the weather. It's too hot or too cold, too wet or too dry. He complains about the government. He complains about his neighbors. He complains about his church. The music's too loud. The preaching's dull. The young people leave messes. They're unruly and irreverent. The services go on and on. He doesn't complain about his neighbor's cat. Instead, he poisoned it. Isaiah is who we want to be. Jonah is who we are. Jonah is a lord of half-hearted, tribal chieftain of those who want God only on their terms. I don't find him attractive, he says. I find him all too familiar. And I wonder if you do too. But even if you don't think, even if you don't see yourself like Jonah, I think if we're all honest in our exploration of this book, we'll see that we're Jonah. This book is meant to show us our own Jonah tendencies, it's also meant to warn and encourage us, saying, now that you see yourself in him, you can, through Christ, cease more and more to be like that and for the right reasons. Jonah is one of what's called minor prophets, of which there are 12. And they're together at the end there of your Old Testament. Uh, They are minor, not because they are less significant than Isaiah, the major ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, nor because what is said in them is less important. Rather, it's all about the length of the books. The minor prophets are minor simply because they're shorter. But Jonah is also unique among the prophets because typically the way things will go is God will call a prophet, and the book bearing his name will consist almost exclusively of his preaching to Israel or Judah. So the prophet speaks on behalf of God, right? God comes to a prophet, the prophet speaks on behalf of God to the people, except for, of course, Habakkuk is unique because it's flipped around. He speaks for the people to God. But their books are typically telling the contents of those messages that they give to the people. But Jonah, on the other hand, is not mostly about his message. It's mostly a narrative about something that happened when he was called to a particular task. In fact, his only oracle in this book is one message, and it's five Hebrew words. Now, of course, what people know most about Jonah is what? That he was swallowed by a great fish. And we can understand why people would be obsessed with that. That's a pretty incredible thing that happens, right? But that great fish, if you look and you read through Jonah, is only mentioned in three verses. He's hardly the main focus. We obviously focus on that because it's so fantastical. A man being swallowed up by a great fish and surviving for three days, who has heard of such things? How often do we hear about something like that happening? How is it even possible that a man could be in a fish for three days? Did this really happen, some ask? Or is this myth or a parable of some kind? But one of the major lessons of Jonah is that God can do whatever he wants. That's one of the major lessons of this book. If he wants a great fish to swallow a wayward prophet and then barf him up onto the shore, he can make that happen. That's no problem. See, we may have a hard time of conceiving of such things, but if you believe the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, that a timeless God, literally spoke and the complex universe was created that a man hanging out in the belly of a fish is child's play to that kind of God. But focusing on the fish misses the forest for the trees. As G. Campbell Morgan said, men have been looking so hard at the great fish that they have failed to see the great God. Truly the main character of this book is not Jonah, it's not the Ninevites, and it's not the fish. The main character of the book is who? It's God. And this book is intended for us to learn more about him and his character, even as we sit and reflect on our character as well. Now, if you're writing down and you want to know a key verse to this book, it would be the last one of the book. Verse 11 of chapter 4. This is the key verse for the book. We have a question. We in our lives, yes, I know for me, we have questions we want to ask God. Yes, you've asked God questions. There are things we want to know. We want answers from him, which isn't necessarily wrong. But we're being invited, don't you see, to consider the questions God is posing. What's his question in verse 11 of chapter 4? Should I not have compassion on the wicked? That's the question that looms large over this book. So let's dive in. The book opens in an abrupt way. Okay, which that just sets the stage for the rest of the book, which is a book that is not overtly concerned with minute details. Right, it just wants to get on with it. It just wants you to know what you need to know. It doesn't spend times in the weeds. So the book actually opens. If you look down at verse one, if you're reading out of the ESV, the first word is now. But if you're reading it in Hebrew, the first word is actually and. As if you're already in the story, and this is a just continue. Okay, so it read. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Who is this Jonah? Well, he's the son of Amittai. Who's Amittai? We don't know. Who is Jonah's mom? We don't know. How did he come about being a prophet? We don't know. How long has he been one? We don't know. The only other place in the Old Testament where Jonah is mentioned is in 2 Kings 14. That's the only other place. But all that it tells us there is that he's a prophet from Gath-Hefer who prophesied about the borders of Israel expanding. Other than that, we know nothing about this man. We do know, right, that the word of the Lord came to him. (laughs) That's what we know. As it does to the prophets of the Lord. And what is the word of the Lord that comes to Jonah? The word is that Jonah should arise and go to Nineveh and preach against it. Now, here's another way that Jonah is unique. See, we have prophets who preach against nations. If you've read through the prophets, you've seen this. Amos especially will preach against nations besides Israel. But they do it from Judah or Israel. We don't ever see prophets actually go to those foreign places and preach against them in person. But this is exactly what God is telling Jonah to do. But why Nineveh? It tells us too, does doesn't it? Because one, they are a great city. And two, their evil has come up before the Lord. Nineveh was a great city in that it was an important one in the Assyrian Empire. It was politically and logistically important. But it was also notoriously evil. The deeds of Nineveh were truly brutal. The prophet Nahum, if you want to look later, write down Nahum 3. The prophet Nahum speaks about Nineveh. And this is what he says. He calls it a bloody city full of lies and pillage. (coughs) He said the noise of the whip, the noise of rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, Many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness. So that's how Nineveh is being described. Israel hated the Assyrians. And they knew that Nineveh was perhaps the most wicked city in the world. Now Jonah is being told to go preach against it. However... This does not simply mean going and tell them that they are evil. Jonah knew that preaching against Nineveh was to not only denounce it, but to warn it. Which would give them an opportunity to do what? Repent and turn to Yahweh. So we could maybe compare this task perhaps to telling a Jewish rabbi in the late 1930s Europe to go to Berlin and preach against the Nazi regime. How well do you suppose that would go? And how motivated would that man be to go and do that task? You see? So Nineveh was truly evil. But that word evil, you see that word evil in your text in verse 2? It means more than wicked. It can mean trouble or distress or misery. It's likely that Nineveh had suffered misfortune on top of being incredibly evil. And what does that make us want to say? If you know what you know about Nineveh, that they're evil and they're vicious, and they're cruel, and they're suffering misfortune, we want to say good, right? If they're evil and brutal and vicious and cruel, that's what they deserve is misfortune. Isn't that what you want to say? That's what I want to say. When someone unduly vicious and cruel, if someone, some misfortune happens to them, I want to say that's exactly what you should get. But see, this is where the book already wants to confront us. Should God not have compassion on them? That's what 4.11 asks, isn't it? Should God not be merciful on that great city? And we say, no, he should not. Which is what Jonah says too. Douglas Stewart says this, Every hearer, reader, may have some Jonah in him or her. All need to reflect on the questions God asks, including the final specific, should I not spare Nineveh? Anyone who replies, why is that such an important question, has not understood the message. Anyone who replies, no, has not believed it. See, what happened was, God's compassion was activated in light of Nineveh's misfortune. Instead of destroying Nineveh, which is what Jonah and the people of Israel would prefer, God intends to give them a chance to repent. Is this fair? Should God forgive a place like Nineveh, who not only worships idols, but has brutally piled bodies up so high that people trip over them? Is it right that God would offer a chance to repent to a place that takes delight in wickedness and stands opposed to God's people? Wouldn't it be better or quicker? And cleaner and more logical if God would just simply wipe them out. That's the first major lesson we're confronted with from this book. The book of Jonah wants us to ask our heart Are you all right with receiving mercy while wishing others would not? Do you like the idea of grace as long as the recipient? is you but not so much when it's your enemy do you think some people are too bad to be saved while also thinking that you deserve salvation the book is confronting us in our self-righteousness and our biases do we deserve grace well no because then what it wouldn't be grace but do we believe we deserve it here's the key right Do we believe we deserve grace more than others? Or to put it another way around, are there people we wouldn't want to see saved? Do we like the idea of grace for me, but not for thee? Do we like the idea of God's love and forgiveness for us, but there are some people that we would prefer not be recipients of forgiveness? C.S. Lewis said this in Mere Christianity after World War II. He said, I said in a previous chapter that chastity was the most unpopular of Christian virtues. I'm not sure I was right. I believe there is one even more unpopular. It is laid down in the Christian rule, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself,' Because in Christian morals, thy neighbor includes thy enemy. And so we come up against this terrible duty of forgiving our enemies. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive as we had during the war. It is not that people, he says, think this is too high and difficult a virtue. It's that they think it's hateful and contemptible. That sort of talk makes me sick, they say. And half of you already want to ask me, I wonder how you'd feel about forgiving the Gestapo if you're a Pole or a Jew. He says, so do I. I wonder very much. See, this is when it presses in real deep. Would we be loath to share heaven With Jeffrey Dahmer or some other vile criminal or serial killer? Would we want to see notoriously wicked people there in heaven with us? We want to share heaven with reformed Nazis or other violent war criminals. We want to be surprised by who is there and surprised by who is not. Like Jonah's nationalism, when our country goes to war, would we rather see our enemies converted or destroyed? Those are uncomfortable questions to ask, but they're very questions being posed in this book. Let's 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 even think outside of those extreme examples. Are there people who have wronged you who you don't think should be forgiven? You hold on to a grudge or some resentment, and you think, since you won't forgive them, God shouldn't forgive. Either. do you ever feel a self-righteousness that makes you feel morally and ethically superior to someone or some group of people do you ever feel like grace is something you want and should receive but others whom you think are better that, that you are better than should not those are hard questions aren't they aren't those hard questions now, those are questions I've had to ask myself on, on many occasions. If I'm honest, I haven't always liked the answer. Well, let, let me tell you about a time recently when I wa- made one of my daughters cry. Okay? How do you like that setup? My daughter was reading a book called The Other Side of the Wall. Okay? It's, a, it's about Palestinian Christians. Well, she got to a particular sentence, and she came, and she showed it to me. And she asked, you know, incredulously, can you believe this? It was a section that the author was talking about how many people see immigration from Arab countries not as like opportunities to be hospitable and loving witness to the vulnerable, but as a threat. Okay, And this is the sentence she showed me that upset her initially, and I made it worse. The author said this. He said, Islamophobia is alive and strong today. How do I know? Because I'm a Palestinian. And for many, being a Palestinian equals being a Muslim— equals being a terrorist, equals not one of us. And he said, I've experienced this firsthand. For many, being a Palestinian Christian is an oxymoron, end quote. Well, how did I upset her (laughs) even more than she already was? I didn't do it on purpose. That helps. But when she showed me that, I just nodded. And I said, yeah. And she just kind of looked at me And I said, I've experienced that. And that upset her. (laughs) Then I told her, I've experienced that since we moved to Georgia. And that upset her a little more. And then I said, I've experienced that from professing Christians since I moved to Georgia. And that's what did her in. (laughs) I told her that there are some who don't see me first and foremost, as a brother in Christ, or even as a pastor, but in terms of my ethnicity. And it happens to be an ethnicity they already have a certain stereotype for, and I can't escape that box that they've put me into. You see? But then I saw this as a learning moment. What I told her was that I had to learn not to become self-righteous towards such people. I had to fight the impulse that I had to feel superior to them, which is the impulse that I had. To feel like I deserve grace more than they did, or that they were less deserving of the gospel than me, or that they were bigger sinners than I was and am. Because, to be honest, i felt those ways before. And in my flesh, I want to feel that way even still. And then I told her, what we need to do is not be angry with those people, but to have pity on them. To have compassion on them. Because that's what God would want because that's what he feels towards us. Do you guys see? We are sinners in need of mercy just as much as they are. And, and I don't tell you that story to present myself as some like paragon of virtue because there are things I still have to learn and I'm fighting through in my own heart. I still need to grow there. I still need to go back to the gospel and go back to the gospel and go back to the gospel and remember one, my own need for radical and unmerited forgiveness from God and two, my own little legalist that I have hanging out in my heart that wants to be self-righteous. That's what the book of Jonah is asking from all of our hearts. Don't you see? Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. He knew all about them. He knew who they were. He knew what they had done. He knew they were an enemy of his people. He knew they were not part of his tribe. He knew they were Gentiles and he thought they don't deserve Mercy, so you ran. It's interesting how the beginning of verse 3 words Jonah's flight. See how it mirrors verse 2? God says, arise and go to Nineveh. Or to say it another way, you could translate it up and go to Nineveh. And how does verse 3 start? See, if you know your Bibles, you know that God comes to a prophet, right? And he says, arise and do this. And then the text, next thing it says is, so the prophet arose and went and did the thing that God said, right? That's the typical pattern that we see in the prophets. So what do you expect from Jonah? God says, arise, go to Nineveh. And then it says, so he arose. And you're thinking, right? Okay. He's going to be obedient like all the other prophets. What's the text say next? He arose to flee to Tarshish. This is unheard of in the prophets. You know, you read the prophets, even Moses, some prophets may be reluctant, right, to the call, or they might raise some objection about their skill or the bigness of the task, but they still go. Every other prophet is called and obeys. And then there's Jonah. Arise and go, followed by, so Jonah arose, what? To flee. God says, go, and Jonah says, no. But he says it with his feet, doesn't he? There's no explanation, is there? No, no argument between God, like haggling between God and Jonah. No debate about this. And then he relents and goes, right? We're just told that Jonah got up like he was supposed to, but then he went the opposite direction. Jonah went all right, but not to Nineveh. Why didn't he go? Well, like I said, we're not told here, but we're told later. If you look at verse two of chapter four, Look at 4 2, we're told exactly why Jonah didn't want to go. Chapter 4 and verse 2. So after he preaches to Nineveh, they repent, sackcloth and ash, he says to God, Is this not what I said when you we were yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, I knew you would be willing to forgive the repentant, and I wanted no part of it. Many come to this and ask, Was Jonah afraid? He knew how brutal the people were. Was he afraid they would kill him or something like that? And the truth is, Jonah was afraid. He was afraid. But unlike why many Christians don't share the gospel, which is because they're afraid of failure or rejection, Jonah is afraid he would succeed. He was afraid he would go and preach and warn Nineveh, and they would do exactly what they ended up doing. James Buckner says it this way, Jonah concludes that God has gone too far with grace, and he doesn't care to participate in this foolishness. Jonah fled because he knew who God was. He knew God is gracious and merciful. He knows he's slow to anger. He knows he's abounding in steadfast love. He knew that God would have mercy for those who repent. And he, quite frankly, didn't want to see none of us spared. He said, they shouldn't get grace. They should get judgment. But Jonah doesn't mind so much when he gets grace instead of judgment, does he? Jonah had a better plan for Nineveh. It's total destruction with no opportunity to turn from God. That was Jonah's will for Nineveh, but it wasn't God's. Sinclair Ferguson said, Jonah's difficulty was moral. When God spoke to him on this occasion about this particular matter, God's will and Jonah's came onto a collision course. Jonah had his own desires, plans, ambitions to fulfill. Jonah had his own concepts of how things should be and how best he could serve God. The flesh made war on the spirit and it seems that the flesh was victorious. So it was. When the choice came between obeying God's uncomfortable will or disobeying and pursuing His own will, whose will won out? Jonah's. It simply was not worth it to Jonah to do what God called him to do. Jonah wanted to do what Jonah wanted to do and wasn't going to be told otherwise. In this moment, Jonah felt like he knew better than God. So God said, go. And Jonah said with his actions, I will not go. I want no part of this. So he runs. Friend, this is the essence of disobedience and sin, is it not? The idea that we know better than God. God gives us good gifts. And he says, I designed this thing. And this is how you ought to use it. And in our sin, we say, yeah, I get that. But I think I'll use it this way instead. God says, here are commands to obey for your good. And we say, well, I think it would be better if I didn't. At least not this time. Jonah's disobedience was him brazenly saying, I know you want me to do this, but I don't like it. And so I won't do it. Don't you see this is what's at the heart of our disobedience too? Don't you see that? Jonah didn't feel like going because he had his own agenda that didn't line up with God's agenda. And guess whose agenda won out? Can I ask, are we so different than him? When we don't feel like doing something, we typically what? Just don't do it. If if we're going to do something, we need to feel like doing it because our feelings are so often our chief guides, yes? But what happens when those feelings clash with God's will? What happens when He calls us to uncomfortable things like evangelism or forgiveness or loving enemies or being last or selflessly serving? What happens when his His calls to obey and kill sin and fight idolatry and fight selfishness and give ourselves for the sake of others contradicts our own will and preferences. Then what? Who wins? Who won for Jonah? Are we so different? Are our feelings any less our guide than they were for him? You know, I've told you this before, but you know, since I have four daughters, I've seen every princess movie. You realize this? Ever made. It's part of being a girl dad gig. Feel me? Some of you guys know what I'm talking about, right? I know the songs. I could quote most of the lines, you know? And here's the thing. They aren't terribly different from one another in terms of what their core message is. And truly, it's a message that's everywhere. Okay? It's everywhere in, in all kinds of movies and shows and music. Which is this. You should follow your heart and your feelings and your emotions. Those are king. Those are the idols. Those are things that should be embraced. And what do they say that freedom is? It's freedom from anyone telling you differently. And that message is pretty explicit. Like, I'm not breaking any news to you here. Culture doesn't hide that. Your heart should be your leader. Like in one of my least favorite princess movies, Frozen, It's wretched, okay? I'm sorry, I know how popular it was, but one of the main characters sings that infernal song, Let It Go, and one of the lines is, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. That's a fitting summary of the message of most media today which is why this isn't just a kid's problem, right? It's an adult problem too, since, you know, who writes those shows and movies? Adults, right? Your heart is in a constant war to be the king or the king queen on the throne. The problem is there's only one throne of your heart. And Jesus does not intend to scooch over so that you can fit. Either he is king, it's really this simple. Either he is king or you are. You can't have both ways. And so, when your will and his will clash, are you following your feelings and assuming you know best or are you submitting to his will? Especially when it is uncomfortable or challenging. See, I hope you realize it's only when you are uncomfortable or challenged that you will grow. Do you know that? You're not going to grow being comfortable all the time. That's why so many people stay decades babes in Christ, because they're just embracing their comfort at every level. You're not going to grow being comfortable and only doing what you feel like doing. Here's the truth. More often than not, God's will and God's commands will challenge us. Because, one, we are sinners in need of reform. And two, he knows infinitely better what we need than we do. If you have decided that you don't want to go to Nineveh, then that's exactly where you need to go. So Jonah didn't want that, but that's where he needed to be. You ever ask this? I've wondered this this week. Why didn't God call someone else? Why Jonah? Like he knew Jonah would do this. Right? When Jonah fled, God wasn't like, oh man, I did not see that coming. Right? He knew this jabroni would flee. He called Jonah because Jonah needed this lesson. As painful as it was, Jonah is the prophet who needed to do this because he's the least likely candidate. Because God messes with our expectations and wrecks our categories for how things should be. Because God works outside of how we think He should. Because He sees a bigger picture than we ever will. Because He knows best. But Jonah, without a word of protest, literally runs from God. But ah, here's another lesson, isn't it? Do you see that all sin and disobedience is running from God? Let me say that again. All sin and disobedience is running from God. And do you see where it leads? And do you see what it costs? See what Jonah does. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. There's questions for us. Where is Tarshish? And how exactly does one flee from an omnipresent God? Well, we don't know where Tarshish was exactly, but we do know that Nineveh was to the east And the Mediterranean where Jonah went was, guess what? To the west. So he headed in the exact opposite direction where he was supposed to go. We also know Tarshish to an Israelite was basically the end of the earth. It was as far as they knew you could go. It was the edge of Israel's geographical awareness. And according to 2 Chronicles 9, a round trip to Tarshish took about three years It was a faraway place, and it was as far as Jonah knew he could get from Nineveh and Israel. So what of Jonah fleeing from the presence of the Lord? Is his theology so bad that he doesn't know that this is not possible? Well, he has good theology, actually. If you look down at verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, He fears the Lord, he tells the sailors, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He knows God rules over all of it, and that he cannot flee from him. He knows Psalm 139 that asks, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? So how is it that he fled from the presence of the Lord? Well, it's because he wanted to go a place where Yahweh wasn't worshipped. Even his choice of Joppa to sail from was deliberate because it lay outside of Israelite territory. Douglas Stewart helpfully explains it like this. He says, Jonah thought that Yahweh revealed himself only to Israel. Jonah, the ardent nationalist, attempted to flee to a place where no fellow believers would be found, hoping that this would help ensure that God's word would not come to him again. If he stayed in Israel, he could expect to hear from Yahweh again, but if he left, he might hear nothing further. So Jonah was thinking that if he went to a place where the true God wasn't worshipped, no word would come to him again. And maybe God would either abandon this plan to reach Nineveh or he would find some other sucker to go instead. Either way, Jonah was determined to have no part in God's grace being shown to people whom he hated to his core. So he goes to Joppa. He finds a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare. Then he went down into the ship away from the presence of the Lord. That's what the text says. And that's the second time, right, that the from the presence of the Lord is said in this one verse, why? Because what else would sin and disobedience do? Like truly, will sin and disobedience drive you closer to God? Of course not. Sin will drive you away from God, never closer. Closer. Listen to this. Okay. I want you to get this. Either sin will drive you away from God, or God will drive you away from sin. Let me say that again. Either sin will drive you away from God or God will drive you away from sin. Those are the only two choices. Now let's observe three short additional lessons in Jonah's actions, okay? First, three additional lessons. First, there will always be a ship waiting to carry you into sin if you're determined to flee from the presence of the Lord. You know what I mean by that? Jonah is determined to flee to Tarshish, yes? Yes. And wouldn't you know it, when he gets to Joppa, what's there? A ship ready to be hired to go to Tarshish. What a coincidence. Alistair Begg said, the devil will always have a conveyance waiting for you when you're determined to run away from the presence of the Lord. You could be guaranteed a way out of town, but be very careful, you will pay the fare. He may provide the ride, but you will pay the fare. Or Puritan Thomas Brooks said, Satan's... First device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup, hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding in sin and to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of sin. By this device he deceived our first parents. See, if you are set in your heart to sin, to flee from the presence of the Lord, Satan will make sure that there is a boat waiting, as it were. But even as Satan provided the boat, we are the ones who pay for it. Do you see? That's our second lesson. Our second additional lesson simply is sin is costly. Jonah paid the fare, didn't he? That's a considerable sum. Jonah is running the whole ship to go all the way to Tarshish. There's no other passengers. There's just Jonah and the sailors disobedience is costly this, is my, this man's life savings disobedience is costly and we're the ones who pay the price satan presents the bait but the hook is there and we're the ones who bite and we're the ones who are hooked we pay the price and the price is costly now but what about obedience who pays for that god is the one who provides in those cases don't you see Donald Gray Barnhouse said, it is always that way. When we run away from the Lord, you will never get to where you are going and you will always pay the fare. On the other hand, when you go the Lord's way, you always get to where you are going and He pays the fare. You remember, for example, let's think back to Luke. When Jesus commissioned the 72, do you remember? And He told them, don't take a staff, don't take a money bag, don't take luggage, don't take extra sandals. They'll take extra cloak, depend on the hospitality of people. And they had to depend on God's provision in their obedience, and it was God who would pay for and provide the provisions. If we obey God, God pays. If we disobey, what? We pay. Disobedience is costly, and rejection of God's presence means the forfeiture of His benefits. And Jonah shows this already in his flight. But the third additional lesson is this disobedience and sin are always downward descents. Disobedience and sin are always downward descents. I want you to notice the language of verse 3 again. It says, he went, what? Down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and what? He went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now look at verse 5. Second part of that verse. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and he had lain down, and was fast asleep. Jonah's trajectory is clearly portrayed as a downward one, because this is where sin always leads. Down. When we disobey God, our posture is always downward. Could it be any other way? This descent is meant to be contrasted, I hope you see this, with what God told him. We are intended to see that everything about Jonah's actions is diametrically opposed to Yahweh's commission. See, God told him up or arise and go to Nineveh, but Jonah's disobeyed and went where? Down. Even as Jonah heads west, his spiritual direction is downward. And only is sin opposed to what God intends for us in Christ. It lies to us in that it does not lead to a vivacious life of freedom, but rather is a bondage that progresses downwards and it culminates in sleep. Sin points us down and down and down and down and further from the presence of the Lord. I think you know this, don't you? Sin will drive you not more to prayer, not more to Scripture reading, not more to community, not more to church gatherings and worship, not more to intimacy with God, not closer to God, not closer with Christ, not more in tune with the Holy Spirit. Sin won't drive you up to the throne of God. It will drive you down to the abyss. Sin never leads where it promises. It always leads away from the presence of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. So let me ask this. What hope is there for people like Jonah? See, what Jonah didn't realize was that he was just like Nineveh. That he needed grace like they did. He was a willing recipient of mercy all throughout the book. And his greatest fear was that God was going to be consistent with what he knew about him. His greatest fear was that God could love sinners. Sinners like him. You know, there was another prophet sent of God to go to a wicked place full of people who didn't deserve mercy or forgiveness. There was a prophet sent of God who was charged with going into a place where people would hate him and reject him and spit on him and curse him and want to kill him. There was a prophet sent by God who would be tasked with not only warning the people of the impending judgment lest they repent, but was himself to take on the iniquity to show once for all that God is gracious, merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. This prophet also descended, but he didn't flee from his charge. He went down from heaven to earth, which is exactly what he was supposed to do. Not only did he not disobey, but he obeyed in a way that no one ever has in human history. Jesus is what Jonah failed to be. And you know something else? He came to save those are like Jonah. People like me. People like you. People who are self-righteous sometimes. People who harbor ill will and biases. People who disobey God's commands sometimes. People who see God's will and it conflicts with their own, so they go with their feelings and preferences instead. People who flee from the presence of the Lord. People who sin and head downward. People who think they have merited something from God through their supposed goodness and morality. People who get to a place where they say, I see that God is compassionate and abounding in steadfast love and relents from disaster, and that's what I need. And I need it just as much as everyone else. Leslie Allen says, the greatness and goodness of God are enhanced against the background of Jonah's meanness and malevolence. Look at the world, pleads the author, at God's world. See it through God's eyes and let your new vision overcome your natural bitterness, your hardness of soul. Let the divine compassion flood your own hearts. I wonder if you've let that compassion of God flood your heart. I wonder if you see Jesus as the truer and better Jonah who has come to have compassion on the undeserving. In other words, you and me. I wonder if you're harboring some kind of resentment or forgiveness, unforgiveness just now. I wonder if you're holding on to some kind of bias right now. I wonder if there are people you think deserve salvation less than you. I wonder if you're running away from God with your life, either through disobedience or to something you know God is calling you to do or through a sin you refuse to let go of. I wonder if you just don't see yourself as a sinner in need of mercy and grace from a loving God through an obedient Christ. Whatever category you fit yourself in, because I bet it's one of those. Arise. But don't flee from the presence of the Lord. Run directly to Him. Arise and go to Jesus, the better Jonah, because Jonah was right, wasn't he? He is compassionate and abounding in steadfast love. So arise and go to Him and be a recipient of His lavish grace today. He will motivate and empower obedience. He will kill your sin. He will kill your biases. He will help you forgive and let go of bitterness and resentment and your gazing upon his person will cause you to realize your desperate need for forgiveness. Arise and go to Jesus.